for praying for us. And uh, thanks to each one of you for whatever capacity that you've been serving here at Berean Community Church. And if, you're, if this is your first visit, I just want to say a welcome to you from all of us at Berean, that we're glad you're here and we're glad we're about to study the Word of God together. So um, if you were planning on attending children's church, that means that you would be four years old through first grade. And if, you, if your parents want you to go to children's church, you can follow Mrs. Coleman and some other folks out the north doors there, and they will be providing instruction for you as well. So why don't you pray with me as we open? Father, we're here before you, and we're not here because you need us here. We're here because we need you. And so we ask this morning, Father, that you would meet us, you would meet us with your word, you would meet us with your spirit, you would meet the needs that we have in our hearts and our minds, um, and that we would go away built up and encouraged uh, because you have met with us. And it's in your name that we pray, amen. Well, if we took a poll of everyone sitting here this morning, I bet that we'd find out that a lot of us grew up in church. Certainly not all of us, but at least had some connection to the church when we were children. And I want to be clear, I am deeply grateful for having grown up in a Christian family and having grown up in the church. There's a lot from those years that is irreplaceable. But the reality is, Churches don't get everything right, and I think a lot of us would say that our parents' generation didn't do a great job of living integrated Christian lives. There's, that is, a lot of us witnessed a huge disconnect between what we saw and what we heard on Sunday morning and what we saw lived out in the rest of the week. And for the most part, I don't think that that was a conscious, deliberate decision. I think many of the people who raised us weren't even aware that God was calling us to live lives of worship. But the truth is, he is. In Romans 12.1, Paul writes about the heart of response of someone who has been saved from a life of destruction and ultimately spiritual death. He writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And as we wrap up this four-week series on worship, let's spend some time this morning looking at a few of the foundation stones of a life that resounds with worship. The first point I want to make is a life of worship centers on a true relationship with the true God. And at this time, I'd invite you to stand as you are able for the reading of the scripture. We're going to be reading from Acts 17. That'll be our, our key passage. Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, 
as well as those in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are bringing and presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are in every way very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. You may be seated. When Paul arrives in Athens, one of the first things he notices is the great number of idols. Now, to be clear, everyone worships something. There are no non-worshippers. And many people living today have no regard for the supernatural, but you can be sure that these people regard something as ultimately important. Power, their intellect, sexual pleasure, food, New experiences, family, something. In fact, whenever true worship is absent, some kind of false worship fills the vacuum. In the case of these Athenians, Paul points out their religiosity. They are worshiping even to the point of building an altar to an unknown God, because they might have missed one. Paul wants to move them from worshipers of gods that they do not know to the worship of the God that he knows intimately. And so in baby steps, he points out things like the aseity of God. God does not live in temples built by human hands, and he doesn't need anything from humans, and yet he is not far from his creation. He even quotes two poets from their culture 
that would have helped him make the connection. And as Nathan pointed out last week, you cannot rightly worship someone that you don't know. God so greatly desires us to know him that he's given us multiple means. He's revealed himself through multiple means. So we can know him from his word, from his creation, by his son, and by his spirit. And the whole purpose of scripture is to tell us who God is and who we are and how the gap between us, between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humans can be bridged. The creation, its awe-inspiring beauty, its stunning diversity and variety, all of it speaks to the amazing power and the uncontainable intellect of the Creator. You can see this awesome creativity of God everywhere. The other day, I was doing some research on birds. Do you know how many species of birds there are on planet Earth? There's, you, you gonna try it? Do it, Jacoby. There are not quite that many, but that was a good guess. There are nearly 11,000 species of birds that have been identified on Earth. 11,000 different kinds just of birds. And the actual number of birds is 50 billion, which is 6.1 birds for every human living on Earth. So if you didn't get anything else from the message this morning, you now have some statistics about birds. Um, And that's just birds. One of the million ways that God chooses to reveal himself through the creation. So the creation is cool, and the creation is amazing, but it only declares God's eternal power and his divine nature. It doesn't give us the specifics of who God is. You have to go to the Word for that. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 points out the truth of God's identity like scattered points of light that become like a laser beam. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. It is impossible to know God or worship Him rightly until you have come to faith in the Son of God. You have to agree that with God that your sin separates you from Him and that God sent His Son Jesus to pay for your sin, to be the atoning sacrifice for that sin. And when you know Jesus, then you can begin to worship. As Jesus said in John 4, The true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you know him? Have you placed your faith in Jesus and received his gift of salvation and life? Are you growing in your knowledge of him? Have you personally experienced by his Holy Spirit, have you experienced his provision, his forgiveness, his love, and his empowerment in your life. If not, today is the day to put your trust in Christ and to begin to live a life of authentic worship. And if you don't know how to do that,
come and find me, come and find Darren after the service, and we will help you start on a path to new life in Christ. So life of worship centers on a true relationship with the true God. Number two, number two, a life of worship tears down the wall between the sacred and the secular. And our focus verse for this section is going to be Romans 14, 23, the last part of the verse. It says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. And this part of the message gets back to some things that I touched on in the introduction. See, there were many believers in the American church of yesterday, and perhaps today, who were never taught to bring all areas of life under the lordship of Christ. And so consequently, you had gross misalignment between faith and the actions of professing Christians that they were involved in during the week. In her landmark book, Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from Its Cultural Captivity, Nancy Piercy tells the story of Bible-believing, church-going women who worked at abortion clinics and thought that they were doing God's will because they thought that they were helping these women and girls, which is truly mind-blowing. And I've personally met businessmen who worshipped on Sunday, and then as soon as Monday came, their only thought was, how can I crucify my competition, and what can I get out of my clients? They thought nothing of being as ruthless as possible the moment that they left the church. And one of these examples of the mismatch between faith and worldview showed up in a real estate deal that Tara and I were involved in. It's probably been more than 15 years ago now. Our buyer was demanding inappropriate concessions on the day before, the day before closing, and they had demanded $8,000 in concessions. And our realtor was a church-going man himself, and he figured out an unloving, aggressive solution to this problem, and he wanted me to give him permission to stick it to the buyer. Well, everybody was stressed, and there were three people's closings that rode on whether ours closed. And I said to him, but John, not his real name, I said to him, but John, that wouldn't be biblical. (laughs) And he looked me straight in the eye, this church-going man did, and said, Jim, there's a time when we have to be done with thinking biblically. (laughs) It was the clearest demonstration that I've ever seen of someone trying to divide the world into this part belongs to God and this part doesn't belong to God between the sacred and the secular. And the truth is, as difficult as it feels sometimes, there is never a time to stop thinking biblically. God gave us His Word for numerous purposes as expressed in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. which says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You can trust the Word of God to be accurate. You can trust the Word of God to lead you on any topic that it addresses. And the Bible addresses, at least in general terms, every area of life. That means 
you can be a worshiper at work, no matter what type of work you do. Any type of honorable work can bring glory to God. That means you can be a worshiper in your family. In Psalm 68, verse 6, David declares, God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a scorched, sun-scorched land. The people in your family, they're God's gifts to you. And you need to learn how to appreciate them as such. That means you can be a worshiper in your recreation. You can be a worshiper in your rest. You can be a worshiper in your hobbies. You can be a worshiper in your time with friends. And the wonder of a life of worship is that it bestows meaning on every area of life. See, I'm not just writing an email. I'm representing Jesus to you through my words. I'm not just painting a wall. I'm protecting and beautifying this home because I have a God who protects and beautifies. I'm not just listening to a little kid at school tell me about her day. I'm showing her the heart of a God who cares and who will listen to her prayers anytime she chooses to pray. Some of the examples I shared with you earlier are negative examples of what happens when we don't believe that the Scriptures apply to all areas of life. But the truth is, they do apply to all areas of life. When you come to know Jesus as your Savior and your friend, you want to live your whole life for His glory. Now, I'm not saying that you won't battle with selfishness. You will. Until we die, the flesh never leaves us, and the flesh and the Spirit are in conflict with each other. It's what we're taught in Romans. But upon coming to Christ, God gives you a new desire. The desire to bring Him glory. The desire to celebrate what He's done for you and let other people know about the goodness of God. He wants your whole life to be an expression of worship to Him. So a life of worship tears down the wall between the sacred and the secular. A life of worship seeks the kingdom first. That's number three. Life of worship seeks the kingdom. Seeks. It's a hard word to say. Seeks the kingdom first. Um, For this, we're going to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, Not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, And here's the key. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus laid out the priorities for His followers. Seek first the kingdom And all the rest of the things 
will be handled for you by a God who loves you. Uh, It doesn't mean that you check out. It doesn't mean that you don't try to earn a living. It doesn't mean that you don't handle your problems and all that sort of thing. But it does mean that you don't have to worry. I've often been amazed at how God has provided for me and for my family over the years. You probably know that I earn my money from a profession that doesn't pay much money. And for those of you that I've never met before, I'll tell you what that is. I'm a private school teacher. Right? So it's, it's not a huge earning job. Um, and my wife and I have four now basically adult children. But there were times 15 or 20 years ago when I would look at my life and I would look at my home and I would look at all these small people that I had to provide for and I would think, God, how am I going to do this? Like, How are you going to do this? And in our case, God met us with simplicity. He gave us basically the four most uncomplicated humans in the world to raise. And back then, I was scared of things like, I was scared that the kids were going to inherit my terrible eyesight. I'm extremely nearsighted, complicated vision. And I thought, all of these kids are going to need glasses and contacts and who knows what else every few months and we're going to be bankrupt. And one of my kids needed one pair of glasses in their entire childhood. In another scenario, we bought a van in 2010 for $800. That van lasted seven years. When it finally died, it finally went to the junkyard with 280000 plus on it. I calculated the per day cost, and it was like 1.7 cents a day to operate that vehicle. You see, that is the God who provides. That is the evidence of a God who provides. While we were busy seeking God's kingdom, He was busy taking care of us. And He provided for us in so many ways that we can't even remember them all. And so many of them were unremarkable. Just generosity of others things that worked out just the right way. So I'd encourage you, get involved in building God's kingdom. There is no doubt that growing the kingdom involves sacrifice and it involves suffering, but it is worth it. The life of worship seeks the kingdom first. A life of worship exudes moral excellence. This one takes us to Second Peter. Second <clears throat> Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 5 through 9, talking about moral excellence. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind. And I always used to read that, and I used to think, what is Peter talking about there, nearsighted and blind? Then I had a retinal detachment in 2019, and I found out what nearsighted and blind meant. Um, I was nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. 
throughout the Bible, there's a vital connection between knowledge of God and moral excellence. True knowledge of God leads to moral excellence. Think back to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 starts out with God identifying himself in verses 1 and 2. And then it goes on to give us ten basic God-centered rules. You will hear preachers say that God gave us the Ten Commandments only to show us his, our need of himself. And that is partially true. It's partly true. Um, the commandments do show our need of God. But more than that, they express the perfections of his character. And they restrain us from doing horrific things to one another. I am grateful for a God who told me to honor my father and mother. Now, I wasn't always grateful when I was a kid, but eventually I was grateful. I'm grateful for a God who told me not to steal. I'm grateful for a God who told me not to lie about my neighbor. But even while I honor those precepts, I need to acknowledge that I cannot keep God's moral law. While I agree that the law is good, I still can't do what it asks me to do. And so the law and Jesus' interpretation of the law in Matthew 5-7 through drive me to my knees at the foot of the cross, where I own my failure and I offer Jesus nothing but my load of sin and my empty hands. But turning to Christ and accepting his gift of salvation doesn't mean abandoning the high call of moral excellence. And in fact, it's totally the opposite. The moment that you received Christ, his Holy Spirit came to dwell inside of you. So indwelt by the Spirit, you are empowered to walk with Jesus. And you're empowered to live the kind of life that is distinct from the world. You know, I've been watching a lawyer show. And most of the characters on that show are fighting to become a name partner in the law firm. And you know, you know like how law firms get named and it's like three people's last names. And so one guy in particular is just obsessed with he wants to be a name partner. And so far we're four seasons in and he hasn't become a name partner yet. But if he does get there, it still won't satisfy That won't be the ultimate thing. So while the world is fighting for power and preferments and pleasure, you and I are fighting to glorify God in our actions and our attitudes. You are aware that you are what Peter said you are. It's our bulletin verse, our cover verse. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. See, because we belong to Christ and our identity is in Christ, it means acting like Christ. Now, some people oversimplify and distort Christ-likeness to doing essentially what other people want you to do, to kind of becoming a jellyfish, and that is not Christ-likeness. That misses the point because while Romans 12.10 calls us to honor one another above ourselves, we can point to many examples in the New Testament where Jesus and the disciples and the apostles and others stood up for truth and stood in the face of difficulties. So I take you to 
the book of Galatians. There's a whole book of Galatians, which is Paul making a case for not giving in to destructive theology. So following Jesus requires a great deal more discernment than just agreeing with whatever action somebody else might want me to take. It requires me to know the heart of Christ and the commands of Scripture and to learn how to apply them in the often convoluted situations of daily life. So a life of worship spills over into moral excellence. And number five, a life of worship prioritizes the needs of others. And for that, we go to Matthew 22, 36 to 40. I'm paraphrasing here. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, he responded with, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then he added in, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The order of these commands is important because they bring our lives into correct balance. God tells me to love him with everything I've got. The whole of my being must prioritize God in my thinking, in my words, and in my actions. So you and I can have private relationship with God where there are times of prayer or there are times of singing to Him or there are other acts of worship that you perform that nobody else ever sees and nobody else is aware of. And these things occur because I love God and I will continue to love Him regardless of the actions of anybody else. But the second part of the equation is also important. Very often, I can demonstrate my love for God by how I interact with you. If we take a look at the end of Acts chapter 2, we find a picture of the very early church. And at this point in salvation history, these people barely even know that they are the church. But what do we find them doing? Their priority is very clearly God-centered. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to prayer. And this God-centeredness shows in their generosity. They sell their possessions and their goods, and they meet the needs of people in their community. The generosity is an outgrowth of their relationship with God. Well, the whole of Scripture is infused with this kind of thinking. Care for one another. Pray for one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Don't tell a brother who is lacking daily food and clothes, go, go, be well-fed and warm. Do something about it. Practice hospitality. Rescue the person who is treading off into error. These are just a few commands to get you thinking. The New Testament contains something like 1,500 imperatives, 1,500 commands addressing how we're to treat each other. And a person who's living a life of worship is regularly thinking about how we can love the people around us. So let's be honest. The five points that I made this morning are only a small part of what we could say about a life of worship, right? And if somebody else had preached this message, they probably would have focused on different things. At the same time, these points are not nothing. 
a life of worship has to be centered on a true relationship with the true God. A life of worship grows as we appreciate the Lordship of Christ over every area of our life. A life of worship grows out of seeking His kingdom first. A life of worship overflows with moral excellence. And finally, a life of worship cannot be lived in isolation, but it seeks the good of others. And these acts of worship come out of a life that is permeated with worship And many of the actions that I talked about today happen far from the formal worship service. So when we say the final amen today, let's not let that be the end of our worship. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Jesus, that you are worthy of our worship. Thank you that you have provided all that we need for life and godliness Thank you that we have been able to open your word together and to be encouraged by it and to know that (laughs) in the midst of our many failings, you are true. And even to the point, it says that uh, even if we disown or are unfaithful to you, uh, you will be faithful to us because you cannot disown yourself. And so, so God, I'm grateful and I ask that as we conclude, as we uh, sing to you one more time, that we truly would be offering you a response of worship. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.